Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the final chapter, chapter 16. We come to this final chapter of this great letter this morning, having finished uh, all 58 verses in chapter 15, celebrating the glorious resurrection that awaits us. And we enter into chapter 16 and a whole new topic. In the opening verses, we encounter these familiar words, now concerning. We've mentioned a number of times that Paul uses those words throughout the book of Corinthians to introduce a series of responses, a series of answers that he's giving for questions that were posed to him in a previous letter. We find that from chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul refers to it to begin with, a question about the relationship of men and women and marriage and divorce and all the topics that are dealt with in that chapter. And then repeatedly throughout the book, we've seen him use this identical phrase, now concerning, in chapter 8, now concerning, in chapter 12, now concerning, again here in chapter 16, We'll find it in verse 25, over and over again, we find him, excuse me, verse 12, we'll find him using this phrase in response to these questions. Sometimes it's a pretty abrupt transition, as you find here, moving from the topic of the resurrection now to, in chapter 16, the topic of the collection or the issue of giving. It's not necessarily unrelated However, maybe not in Paul's mind, certainly not in God's mind, and it shouldn't be unrelated in our mind. The issue of giving and the issue of eternity, the topic of generosity and the topic of the resurrection, the topic of eternal rewards and the topic of temporal material resources, they're not unrelated at all. As a matter of fact, as you trace through Scripture, it was Christ, who clearly laid this down when he he tells us in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are not unrelated issues. The way we handle our money, the way we give or do not give, we're told in Scripture, has enormous consequences on the way we will experience the kingdom, on the way that you will experience the resurrected life. And so we can't really talk about giving without talking about the resurrection. We can't really think, uh, excuse me, Think about generosity without thinking about the impact it'll have on our future. In fact, Paul specifically instructs us to tell those who have money in this life to take deep consideration of these things. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, instruct those who have material resources not to be haughty nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
They're to be there to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, and thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. When Paul's talking about the future there, he's not talking about your retirement. And he's not talking about your 401k. When he's talking about a foundation there, he's not referring to your final years in this life. He's talking about all of the time you'll spend in the next. So if you are a person who is offended by discussions of money, you would be offended at the preaching of Christ. If you're a person who's offended by money, you'd be offended at the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and you'll be offended by those who faithfully follow his instruction, telling people exactly what the consequences are when it comes to the way they deal with their material resources. Because the issue of eternity is inextricably linked with the issue of giving. Not just eternity, though. The scripture tells us even now, even in our present situation, our our stewardship of our resources, the way we handle our money and what we do with our money says a lot about where we are spiritually with God. Of course, you have places like 1 John, which says, if you see someone in need and yet close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? In other words, it's an incongruency. For you not to have a generous heart whenever you claim to have the love of God abiding in you. It's an incongruency and it's a testimony against whatever you may profess with your lips. Or more specifically in 2 Corinthians, when Paul's talking about giving in general, he says in verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. Paul there couches the whole issue of generosity, the whole issue of giving within the context of the gospel itself. And he teaches us that what Christ did for us, in other words, the gospel ought to, at the very core, generate within us generous hearts, giving hearts, responsive hearts with our material resources. All that to say is we come to a topic today that has been abused, has been in many ways misused by so many in the church. There's always a temptation for the sake of avoiding offense that you wouldn't address these kinds of issues. We understand that so many have centered their entire ministry and life on fundraising and gathering funds and the abuse of that within the church. So we come to the issue of giving today with a sensitivity to that surrounding environment that we're in. And yet, because of the abuse, because of the misuse, because of all the confusion that's been sown by all of the prosperity preachers, there's actually a demand on us to give more careful attention to what God's Word says when it comes to the stewardship of our material resources in light of eternity. We don't want to give, in other words, the microphone, the stage, the voice when it comes to the issue of money simply to 
those who are willing to abuse what the Bible teaches about it. But we want to give clear enunciation for everything God calls us to in the matter of stewardship. So with all that in mind, we turn this morning to this great chapter. We give our attention to what Paul has to say here about the collection. In a few brief verses, Paul gives us tremendous spiritual benefit by the truths that he highlights in these verses. Much needed clarification within a confusing landscape of a materialistic world as Paul lays out for us uh, and gives our attention to five characteristics, five markers, if you will, that will define the stewardship that God seeks. Five characteristics, we might say, of the kind of gifts that God desires. Five things that really ought to characterize our giving on a regular basis as believers. Let me just read these four verses for us as we begin to look at the details of it. Paul says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I come. And when I will arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Five characteristics of the gifts that God desires here that Paul lays out for us. We'll begin this week with just the first two and finish up next week. First of all, Paul says God wants our gifts to be purposeful. He wants them to be purposeful. That is to say that as you consider the resources the Lord has given to you, You are not to dispense of them. You are not to be giving them in an arbitrary or uh, we would say an unguided fashion. When you look into the scripture, in other words, clearly and repeatedly, there's an emphasis that's called for. And that emphasis is on giving to the saints. Giving to, we might say, the work of the Lord. Giving to causes which advance the kingdom of God. In a landscape where there are repeated demands and appeals made to you by mailers and by email and by advertising and by personal relationships and connections and networks and all those other things that are constantly clamoring on your genero- clamoring for your generosity, we turn our minds back to the Scripture, and what we find is a clear and compelling call to prioritize giving within the kingdom of God. It's not to say the Bible doesn't call us to general generosity. We have places such as this, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which tell us that we ought to be eager and ready to give to needs anytime we see them. But even within that context, the totality of Scripture puts a priority on giving 
within the scope of Christian work, within the scope of the saints. This is the way Paul says it in Galatians 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is our priority. This is our first obligation in kindness and in generosity and giving to support fellow believers individually and collectively. The church's first financial responsibility is to invest in its own ministry and people. Within that broad scope of everything that we are called to do, there are calls for discernment, there are calls for wisdom in the kind of giving that we participate in, we will occasionally find needs and opportunities that are so compelling and and so match up with the compassion that's demonstrated in the gospel that we will participate. But none of that is to ever surpass. None of that is to ever supplant. None of that is to ever, ever diminish from this priority of giving For the saints, or we might say in the church. In this particular case, Paul is giving or calling for the support of those who are in the Jerusalem church. That is to say, there's a call for us to be generous in general. I think certainly there's a call for us to be generous within our local context. But even globally, there is a call for us to be participating in God's work among the churches throughout the nations. In this situation, Paul has been leading or led, I should say, throughout many churches, an effort to collect resources in relief of the Jerusalem church. He did it, as we see here in Corinthian and the Corinthian church. He did it in the Roman church. He did it in the Macedonian church. He did it in the Philippian church, particularly. We see it, uh, he mentions even here in verse 1, how he directed the churches of Galatia. And so you could literally move across the entire landscape of Paul's ministry from east to west, and virtually every corner that he touched, he was engaged in a grand fundraising effort for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. Obviously, as you read through the scripture, you'll find in chapter 11 of the book of Acts that a great famine had come across the land in the mid-40s. It wasn't just in the Middle East, where we know from historical documents that it covered almost the entire Mediterranean region. And so it affected the, the, what we would call the global economy at that point. And yet the, the cities that were under Roman uh, citizenship, the official Roman colonies, largely were unaffected as Rome used its reach and its grip on every corner of the world to access resources, particularly out of Egypt, and ship grain and resources back to their home colonies so that those who were in Gentile regions uh, didn't feel the pinch of the famine quite so strongly. But there was a large swath of people who were in the Middle East who were, for the most part, bypassed by this developed system of economic relief. And they suffered greatly during this period of time. 
Jerusalem in particular was suffering acutely and the church there most acutely. You'll notice Paul doesn't call for a relief necessarily of every church in the Middle East. He doesn't call for a relief of every church affected by this famine. He doesn't call for a general relief across the board for so many of these other churches, but he identifies and emphasizes the relief for the saints in Jerusalem. Why is that? Because the church at Jerusalem had set the pace in terms of sacrifice. They had set the bar in terms of generous giving. And as a result of that, they had found themselves in a time of trial and distress and famine, particularly vulnerable. In other words, they gave, as we often say, they gave until it hurt. They gave in a risky fashion. They gave at such a level that they opened themselves up to vulnerability. And in this particular situation, they were suffering. You remember the people there from the very beginning had set this pace. Acts 4.34 says, There was not a needy person among the Jerusalem church, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So there was this incredible outpouring of sacrifice on the part of God's people, and people had all of their needs met there in the early days of the church. Folks have read that through the years, particularly in the last century, and, and tried to impose on that this idea of communism, as if, this are, as if there was this sort of communistic utopia that was created. But this wasn't communism. Communism is really predicated on a single act of redistribution where all common property is gathered up and distributed evenly among everyone at a point in time, and that that is uh, what is the, 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 the foundation of the, uh, of the communistic economy. But this isn't what that's talking about. Because Luke uses there not just one-time verbs, he uses uh, participles and imperfect verbs, which indicate that this wasn't some one-time divvying up equally of all property. People coming and selling their land and redistributing it to the poor. This was an ongoing attitude, an ongoing uh, involvement of people. This was constantly going on, or we would say it's characteristic of this church. They were repeatedly digging deeper and deeper and making greater and greater sacrifices as the needs arose within the church. It was voluntary and it was sustained. People were making a choice over and over and over again against personal gain and making choices for the sake of ministry. Freely giving up what they had to further the work of God. This was not just some socialistic system. And it wasn't some grand benevolence project. This isn't just some heartwarming story about a church taking people in off the street and giving to them. 
cup of cold water and a bite to eat. This was, in fact, all about discipleship. It was all about discipleship. This, if you've been with us in the study of Book of Acts on Sunday evening, we saw this. All of this crisis where people were in need to begin with, all of this was precipitated by so many people who had come into the church, flowed directly into the church on the day of Pentecost. You remember the story there in Acts chapter 2? Pilgrims had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They'd come from all over the Mediterranean world. In fact, Acts 2 lists 17 different people groups or nations, islands and coastlands and all across North Africa, all across Southern Europe, People had come and gathered for the Feast of Pentecost. And it was typical that people would take a sort of pilgrimage in those days during these grand feast of the Jews. But when they did so, as you might imagine, they would come with resources to see them through a brief visit and the travel necessary to get there and back. But they weren't necessarily immigrating into Jerusalem or into Israel permanently. And so they arrived there for this feast with whatever they had to bring for this brief journey and for their brief stay in Jerusalem. They all descended on Jerusalem for this feast. And in God's amazing providence, they all heard the gospel presented in their respective languages. God's design was that before he would scatter the church on a missionary endeavor throughout the known world, he was going to bring the world to them. He was going to bring the world to them. These people would eventually become missionaries some 10 years or so after the founding of the church. 10 years that they pilgrimed as strangers in Jerusalem before God would ultimately, by way of persecution, cause them to scatter back to all of the places where they came and take the gospel that they had been brought up under and learned in that 10 years. But in the meantime, here they were. And so you basically have all these pilgrims, all these travelers, all these tourists who'd come to Jerusalem planning to stay just for a brief period of time. And in the middle of their journey, God grabbed hold of their lives and he transformed them by the message of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so instead of returning home, they choose to stay because there was no church where they came from. To go back to Cyprus was to go back to a place where there was no church, to go back to Greece, to go back to Egypt, to go back to uh, wherever, Cappadocia, all those places, there was no church. There was no one to disciple you. There was no one to teach you. There was no one to ground you. There was none of that. No churches anywhere in the world except in Jerusalem. So if you wanted to be discipled, If you wanted to fulfill the great commission, when Jesus told us to make disciples, if you wanted to do any of that, at this point, 
the best way to do it was to keep all of these pilgrims in Jerusalem. Of course, that meant shouldering an enormous financial burden. These people had come, as we said, only with enough resources for their journey. They weren't prepared to stay beyond the feast. And so they would have run out of money for things like food and clothing, not to mention housing and other needs. And so consequently, there were large numbers of people before long who were quite needy. We read about it in Acts 6, how there were a number of widows, we're told particularly not just from the Jews, but even from the Hellenistic uh, Jews. Those, in other words, who had come from outside of Jerusalem. A great number who were in need of support of the church. And so these people who were part of the Jerusalem church stepped forward and in the name of ministering and in the name of keeping all of these pilgrims there locally so that they could teach them, so that they could disciple them, in the name of all of that, they came forward and generously sacrificed their own things, not just their cash, but they even began selling their houses and their land to facilitate the need. Now, the easy thing, obviously, would have been to send all of these people home. It would have been easy uh, to demand that if they're going to stay, they pay their own way. They meet their own need. That they stand on their own two feet. That's not what the people of Jerusalem did. Because they were a spirit-filled people. They had been filled with the spirit on the day of Pentecost. They were living, we're told, in Acts in one accord in the unity of the Spirit. And because they were a Spirit-filled people, God moved in their hearts to meet this demand for ministry. They embraced the challenge, in other words, of the Great Commission. God had given them that mandate. And they answered the call. And they understood that things that had been given to them had been given by God. And they understood that those things were ultimately owned by God. And so it's really not a choice of what you personally want to do with them. It's a choice of what God wants to do with them. Right? It's His. Luke tells us. In Luke 4.32, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That was their attitude. Nothing that belongs to me belongs to me. It all belongs to God. Now it would be easy to dismiss what was taking place there as irrelevant As just some fanatical group of people, some heartwarming story, some special occasion. That's the way some people want to paint the picture. But this wasn't just a bunch of indigent and penniless people. As we said, this is all about the Great Commission. And so therefore, this is all about you and I. This is all about taking advantage of the best opportunity that we have to minister to the most amount of people in the best way. And this was the decision that the apostles made. They made a strategic decision not to send all of these people back to where they came. They quickly 
recognized that to do so would be nothing more than a haphazard missionary effort. They decided that it wasn't best to try to organize a bunch of new converts and send them back out with a few makeshift teachers. There must have been a temptation to ask, why don't we uh, just let them go back to their homelands, back from where they came from? Why should we feel obligated to provide all of this for them? But this is what the apostles deem best. This was the judgment of the apostles, we're told, because in Acts it says all the people came and brought their proceeds. They didn't give it directly to the pilgrims, they gave it to the apostles. Acts 4 says they laid it at the apostles' feet. That's really, a, and we don't know if they did that uh, literally, but it's at least an Old Testament way of submission. When you lay something at someone's feet, it was a way of, of, of conveying that this is in full submission to you or under your authority. And so what we're basically told there is that the people brought and put their resources at the authority of the apostles, and it was the apostles who made the judgment of how that was to be distributed among all the people for the best use. People were selling their things, giving up their money to whatever the apostles deemed best for the advance of the gospel, entrusting these funds to their spiritual leaders. Now today, obviously, our challenges don't come from a horde of pilgrims in our midst. The challenge isn't always providing food and clothing to people who are just hanging around trying to hear the word of God. Our challenge is geared more towards sending people around the world. Our challenge is more toward providing discipleship opportunities here in other means. But the the purpose and the calling is the same. The goal is still the Great Commission. It's still about making the best use of the resources that we have to reach the most people in the most effective way. And in Paul's mind, this wasn't some one-time event. This was not just some uh, great story to be told throughout all the life of the church. This was a constant ministering back and forth that was intended to be launched by the Jerusalem church and then to be taken up by us as a banner or as as a baton in ministry and carried forward to the next generation. He envisioned a church that would continue with this kind of culture of sacrifice within its ministry locally and globally. And as a part of that, he he spent a great deal of his own ministry and his own time raising funds now for the sake of this church in Jerusalem that had laid out so much in its first 10 years. He understood the strategic significance of that sacrifice that was made in those early days. He understood that it provided for the discipleship of a generation of new believers, an army of missionaries who would disperse abroad throughout the Roman Empire and take the gospel eventually to all of these people to whom he writes. The Jerusalem church provided for this early discipleship that reaped so many spiritual benefits for the entire world. And so Paul wants these Gentiles to understand. And now he wants them in turn to do their part. 
Listen to how he writes to the church in Rome. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip back to Romans chapter 15. And you can see he addresses this same offering in verse 25. Many people, by the way, believe he wrote the book of Romans from the city of Corinth as he was there making these collections to begin with. Romans 15, verse 25, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. So where did that come from? Why do we owe it to them? Well, you owe it to them because they, by their sacrificial giving, laid the foundation before you. They're the ones who who grounded your eventual teachers and missionaries in the gospel who then brought the gospel to you. Paul says they owe it to them for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul says this is just something that was begun by the Jerusalem church. And now it needs to be participated in by all of you. And even in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul will continue to put emphasis on this offering for the church in Jerusalem. This culture culture of mutual sacrifice and sharing. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, in other words, this is God's design. God's design is that at different stages and in different times, he blesses some of us and at other stages, not some of us. But God intended that if you're in the category of the blessed, that you step up to the plate and recognize that you have an investment to make based on the heritage that's been given to you for the sake of the gospel. And this is just fair. It's just fair. People don't like that. They don't like you to talk about fairness. They don't like you to talk about doing your part. They don't like to hear about how, how uh, as, as leaders of a church, you know, you try to lead in such a way so that there's this kind of fairness and everyone's participating and gener- uh, generously giving. But that's what God's word demands. That you challenge those who've been blessed to respond to those blessings. You challenge those who've been blessed Those who've received, those who've been taught, those who've been discipled, those who've benefited spiritually, to then turn around and provide so that others can experience the same. This is what really we're talking about when we talk about purposeful giving. This is why among all the demands that come on you and on your family and all the requests and all the solicitations and all the, you know, uh, uh, crying children. That's why among all these things. The orphanages, the education projects, 
feeding the hungry, all those things that are always out there. This is why we always come back and say the Bible prioritizes your giving to the church. This is where you've received discipleship. This is where you've received your call. This is where you've been given your mandate for the Great Commission. And this is where you sacrificially give. And you follow the pace that's been set for you by those who've gone before you. Paul says in Verse 1, this is what I directed the churches of Galatia to do, and so also you are to do. We know that he told the Roman church to do it, the Macedonian churches to do it, the Philippian churches to do it. All of these churches, every one of them, challenged to this work of the Lord for eternal purposes. For eternal purposes. Well, not only is it purposeful, But Paul also tells us it needs to be habitual. It needs to be habitual. That is that you're not to give only when you get a feeling. You're not to do it, in other words, just when the Spirit moves you to do so. Or just whenever you get a big bonus and you have some extra cash that you're looking for something to do. Paul tells the Corinthian believers they were to do this when, in verse 2, on the first day of every week. That's a reference to the public gathering of the church. The first day of every week is obviously Sunday. The Old Testament, of course, public worship, if it took place in a public way, it took place on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. There were, if there were ever convocations, that was when they typically took place. But in the early days of the church, the church was in the habit, or from its very earliest, took up the practice of gathering on the first day of the week. The reason they did this is because this is when Christ gathered them. You say, when did he gather them? He He gathered them after his resurrection. His first appearance to them was on a Sunday. And it was at a gathering in an upper room. And we're told that later on, seven days later as a matter of fact, in other words, on another Sunday, that once again, he appeared to them in a gathering. And then we're told that here, of course, in 1 Corinthians 16, we're told in in other places that this was the practice of the early church to gather on the first day of the Lord's week. And it only, uh, first day of the week, And it only makes sense because this was the day of the resurrection. This became the centerpiece of apostolic preaching, the centerpiece of their worship, the centerpiece of everything that they were was the resurrection of their Savior. And so it only made sense that they would begin to worship on Sunday. Sunday became from the very, very beginning The day of worship for believers because of that reason. Because it's the day that Christ gathered the believers. And we follow the tradition ever since. We're not Sabbatarian. We don't worship on the Sabbath. We don't keep an Old Testament Sabbath. We keep the Lord's day as it came to be known. Come to the book of Revelation. And John speaks about the first day of the week. And he refers to it simply as the Lord's day. So we gather as the church has for 
really all time. We gather on the first day of the week. And so when Paul says that on the first day of the week we're to do this, his desire is that we would give, in other words, at the public gathering of the church. Paul obviously could have instructed all of these believers to gather their own money at home. Just set aside uh, an envelope or a drawer or a pot or whatever they would have used. Just sort of gather up your own money for purposes of giving to the Lord whenever you saw a need that you liked. He could have told them to gather it up and then when he came to town, they would then receive it all in one big grand offering. That would have been a, I guess you could say, a legitimate way of gathering money. But that's not what he said. He wanted them to do it every week. He wanted them to do it habitually, regularly, consistently. Why is that? Why would that be the case? What's the difference? Well, the only difference I can think of is that because giving ought to be a part of your worship. Giving ought to be a part of your worship. He wants it to be a part of the public worship of the church. Now, in those days, people would have been paid on a daily basis. The vast majority of people were day laborers of some sort. They would take their wages daily or maybe weekly. Unlike many who are in this room, you receive a paycheck maybe every two weeks, maybe every month, and some people even less frequently. The economics have changed since the first century, but the principle remains that giving is to be a part of our public worship. And we participate in giving as an act of worship. That's why we as a church pass a plate during the worship services. Through the years, people have asked us, why do you do that? Why don't you just put a box at the back of the church? Why don't you just do something where people can just give whenever they want to? Because we understand from Scripture that giving is an act of worship. And we want to demonstrate and we want to represent that on a regular basis by having it as a part of our worship. You can sing at home. You can sing in the foyer if you want to. If you have a nice voice, please, if uh, the rest of you. I mean, you can do all kinds of things outside that you, you, you ought to do all kinds of things outside of here that we do in a worship service. But we include certain aspects of worship because we feel like they're emphasized in Scripture. Or another way to say that is the church isn't to wait around until there's some urgent need. And then respond when that need arises. In fact, in fact Paul says he wants them to, to save up. The, uh, the, excuse me, therizo is the word. We get our word thesaurus from it. It literally means a treasury or a storehouse. And so what he's saying is, is that the, you ought to be giving regularly to the church. And the church ought to be keeping an account. Or it ought to be keeping some sort of fund. Or it ought to be keeping some sort of treasury. Out of which... It can make regular disbursements as ministry needs arise. This is very similar to what you see taking place in the book of Acts. People came 
they gave, they sold their, their, their goods, they sold their land, they sold their houses, they gave their resources, whatever it might be. They didn't take the money and give directly to specific needs. They came and laid it at the apostles' feet. They stored up, in other words, a treasury as an administration of the church, and then the apostles distributed to it as various needs arose. I know there are some people who do not want or have not typically given of the resources in that way. They want some sense of personal gratification, meeting some, some particular need. And so they just kind of keep their money and give it out in chunks occasionally as there's a call for this or that. I remember one man, I, I remember early, early on in my Christian life, one man telling me that he liked to not give for an entire year, and he would just wait till the end of the year and saw how much of a shortfall there might be, and he wanted to give to that shortfall in the church's budget. So my question is, what if there's no shortfall? Is that suddenly no longer the Lord's money? And who are you to determine how the needs arise and fall? This isn't God's will. Paul clearly wanted their giving to be habitual. He wanted it to be regular. He wanted it to be weekly. Not necessarily that you have to put something every week into the plate as it's passed, but that it should be a weekly part of our worship service. It should be a regular habit in your act of worship. Giving freely as the Lord prospers you. Habitually. They weren't to wait on Paul to get to town and make some big appeal before they finally came forward. They were to do this week in and week out in preparation for his coming. And their generous impact on the kingdom. Wouldn't come in one big bang. When they got the urge. Or when the spirit prompted them. Their impact would come one week at a time. That's the way it is with faithful givers through the ages. We may have a special offering now and then. We as a church do that occasionally. We have one at the end of the year coming up for our missionaries that we take up at the end of the year. A gift to all of our missionaries for Christmas. We do that for buildings sometimes. We have designated special offerings where we ask you to bring over and above what you normally give. But the foundation is always the regular, habitual, faithful giving week in and week out. In a world of, of um, flash philanthropy and billboard humanitarian causes, it is the faithful, weekly, habitual gifts of common believers that make the greatest cumulative impact on the world by the funding of the work of God globally and locally. Well, there are three more for us to get to and we will have to keep them for next week. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we recognize that You have been faithful to us. 
To do anything else would be blasphemous, arrogant, proud, self-sufficient. Those are all high-handed offenses against our Maker, against our Savior. Lord, we recognize with the people of Jerusalem that nothing we have is our own. Everything we have has been given by you. And it all has a purpose. Help us, Lord, to invest then in those eternal purposes. Those things which you have mandated to us. Those things which have been set for us as a pattern and as a standard from faithful believers throughout all the ages who have gone before us. Lord, it is they who have sacrificed and given up so much to pass down to us a heritage of teaching and discipleship and training and doctrine. May we not be the weak link, the selfish generation that lets all of that fade. Give us hearts, Lord, responsive to your generosity with grace and gener generosity of our own. We pray in Christ's name.